I am thrilled at today's guest, uh, Ambassador Ron Dermer. He is, of course, Israeli Minister of Strategic Affairs and the former Israeli ambassador uh, to the U.S. Um, he is, to say he's in the middle of everything is an understatement. He's in the war cabinet. He's... Uh, uh, BB's, I want to say right-hand man. I don't know if that's saying it correctly, but just that's the sense of it. Um, he is a fellow Penn graduate, Wharton graduate, ZBT. I wasn't in ZBT, but you were a ZBT guy. I spent a lot of time there. We've got a lot to talk about. Welcome to the show, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know how busy you are. Uh, thank you, Donnie, for having me. Uh, and also really thank you uh, for taking such a strong and unequivocal stance against anti-Semitism. Uh, since October 7th. Uh, it's deeply appreciated. It's been a kind of light and a lot of darkness that you see. And I think as, uh, as things fade and the dust settles in future years, you'll look back at that stand as a real badge of honor. Uh, and I, I mean it from the heart. And I want to thank you for continuing that fight and to call out anti-Semitism and making clear that there's a difference between legitimate criticism of Israel, this or that government, this or that policy, versus rank anti-Semitism. And not that many people have been fighting that on the front lines, and you've been doing that, and that I am truly grateful for. I appreciate that. So that means it means a lot to me personally. Um, we're going to obviously talk about what's going on and the potential ceasefire that's on the table, but as long as you brought up anti-Semitism, were you shocked at the reaction around the world, particularly in the U.S., when October 7th happened, and instead of people rallying around Israel, quite frankly, the opposite happened? And I, 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 are you hardened and expected that? Or were you, I, I was kind of stunned and it really, it sent a shiver through all of us that holy shit, that how much hatred there is towards Israel and towards Jews. And, you know, we, we can, I don't want to say sometimes forget that, but it gets buried. And unfortunately it came so to the surface. I was not shocked, actually. Uh, I think that October 7th was a surfacing event of things that were under surface, uh, right under the surface and it brought it out. Uh, but this this is something that I expected to happen for some time because, you know, I could see the arc of this, uh, what sometimes people call the new anti-Semitism. And it's really an intellectual arc. And what you have is really in very old hatred, hatred for Jews, that is connecting to a new zeitgeist that's out there. Uh, and the way that I would I would trace the arc for you, and it really started the first time I became aware of it was right around the college, my college days, where you can see it. If you remember, there was a book by Alan Bloom called The Closing of the American Mind. Mm -hmm. And he wrote in the 1980s that all my students at Harvard, they believe in one thing. They all agree that there is no right and wrong. That's what he wrote in the 1980s. And I think the arc, if I look at it, it was uh, there is no right and wrong. And then it moved to might is wrong. Then might is white. And then Jews are white. And so I think that's what you're seeing coming out uh, on the streets, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world. And you can so look it's, at the, it's the oppressor and the oppressed and the darker skin and the whiter skin and the more affluent and the less affluent. And it's it's that simple. Again, it's Jew hatred. If you look Jew hatred in different periods in history, I, I wrote a, a, a piece actually helped Natan Sharansky, a famous uh, uh, Jewish dissident in the former Soviet Union, wrote a piece called on hating the Jews in Commentary magazine. And I and I helped him sort of put that together. And at that time, it was looking at the history of hatred of Jews. And you see that it's when Jews are always standing against the current. And the current changes, but the Jews are always found to be standing against that current. And that's why I said it's an old hatred and it's a new arc. Now, you have some old anti-Semitism, I would say, more on the right side of your political spectrum. That's more the old hatred, you know, a neo-Nazi type stuff, you know, the people in Charlottesville or something saying the Jews will not replace us. I think that's kind of familiar from what you saw 80, 90 years ago in Germany. But you also have something new, which is this arc. And that's why a lot of people were so shocked by it because they didn't see it coming. But you can see the problem. Look, as I said, it starts, there is no right and wrong. Now, you know, you have everyone saying, well, we all have our narratives. There's no truth and falsehood. There's no right and wrong. Uh, and I think that's fundamentally wrong. It's true that not all the world is black and white. That's true. There's a lot of gray. But once you say it's all gray and there's no black and white, you're heading down a rabbit hole that's going to be very, very dangerous. And those people who say, well, there is no truth, there is no falsehood, there's only, narr there's only narrative, I would tell them, well, you know, there are Holocaust deniers out there. They think the Holocaust didn't happen. 
Uh, we say 6 million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. So maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. Maybe it's only 3 million Jews. So it's that type of nonsense that there is no basic right or wrong that can lead you to a situation where good and evil can be flipped around. It doesn't start off that way, but that's actually the beginning. And then you move, as I said, to the idea, once there is no right and wrong, then anyone can decide what wrong is, right? Because there's no clear rules. There's no moral absolutes. And then I think we've moved to a place where might is wrong. And here it's very interesting. It's an irony of uh, Jewish history a little bit because the Jews made many contributions to religious ideas. But I think we also made an important contribution to political ideas is we were the people who historically rejected the idea that might makes right. Most people believe that in antiquity, and the Jews rejected it throughout our whole history. And we rejected it whether it was said by a pharaoh or Caesar and certainly a Fuhrer. But now most young people, they don't believe might makes right. They believe might makes wrong, which is also not a very Jewish idea because you can be powerful and just and you can be powerful and unjust. You can be Mm -hmm. weak and just. You can Mm -hmm. be weak and unjust. So once might makes wrong, that's the next curve. Then they went to might is white. And you have you're dealing with those issues in the United States a lot. But it's not just the United States. It's around the world. You know, the traditional, you know, the powers in Europe and the United States and elsewhere versus what's called the global south. I think in the U.S. you're dealing with the 1619 versus 1776, what defines America, what doesn't define America. So we don't have to get too much into that because it's probably something that you deal with every day in your culture. And then the last turn of the screw is that Jews are white, which is, first of all, not true. In Israel, most Jews are actually not white. They come from the Middle East and North Africa. We also, as you know, we have Ethiopian Jews. Um, in fact, to the best of my knowledge, the Jews, the Israel is the only uh, country in the history of the world that took blacks out of Africa to freedom. Uh, and yet we're accused of being an apartheid uh, state. But Jews are positioned as being these u- uber-privileged group. And so you have this very strange situation. And I think one of the reasons why people were so shocked, as you say, is because you know, I was born and raised in the United States, as you can hear from my accent in, my, in Miami Beach. And so when I was growing up as an American Jew, you know, the civil rights movement is part of your identity as a Jew, yeah, that you yeah. paid a, 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 an important part in this whole struggle. In fact, I once sat with, uh, I won't say her name, but a very, uh, very prominent uh, congresswoman, um, African-American. And we were talking about the civil rights movement. And she said, you know, they say there were good whites during the civil rights movement. No, they weren't. She said they were all Jews. So Jews feel that our contribution to the civil rights movement, and we say to ourselves, you know, we just walked across the bridge in Selma. Now we're looking for the next bridge to fight against discrimination. And we see ourselves as part of the community of those who would be historically oppressed because with any basic knowledge of Jewish history, that extends beyond breakfast, you understand how Jews have been treated for century after century after century after century, a couple thousand, 2,500 years, maybe longer of anti-Semitism. But a lot of people on the far, let's call them the radical left, I don't want to use labels. Uh, And I think there's a difference between a liberal and how it's defined versus somebody who's on the radical left. It's not the same thing. When I listen to Bill Maher- Just like there's a difference between a conservative and someone who's on the radical right. Right. And I think when I listen to Bill Maher, what I hear is a liberal uh, and somebody who wants, you know, free speech and and will fight against discrimination. Somebody who's on the far left has a has a different value system. Mm -hmm. And I think they see the Jews and the totem pole of privilege were at the top. And that's very dangerous for Jews, because you could find yourself in a situation, which I think you see today, where you have on one side, you have that old hatred that is now resurfacing. And on the other side, you have this new hatred that is based on this intellectual zeitgeist. And that intellectual zeitgeist is very powerful. And I spoke about this several years ago. Uh, I don't know if everybody saw it when I said it, although people came up to me, ah, you have a point about this, that how dangerous this is. Uh, But I think it came to the surface on October 7th. So on the one hand, it didn't surprise me at all. Uh, I think it's very sad that this has happened. I also don't think the anti-Semitism is simply an anti-Semitic thing. I think 
we're the low-hanging fruit of an anti-Western, anti-American. I think most of those people who are going in those in, in the streets, I think if you interviewed them, you interviewed 100 people, you'd be lucky to find three people who have anything nice to say about the United States of America. Yeah, I, I mean, we saw that when when all of a sudden it became Osama bin Laden. They posted his his doctrine, and people, fucking idiots in this country, like yo, maybe at a point there. I, I mean, you don't need to know anything else. But it's 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 not understand. You know, America again is defined by its imperfections. You know, the thing about being a country is you're not perfect. America's not. I have news for all your listeners. America's not perfect, and Israel's not perfect. The question is. How do you, do you judge a society based on a standard of perfection and only focus on its flaws? Like this 1619 versus 1776 debate, it's very interesting. But 1619 is a story of many countries around the world. Mm -hmm. 1776 is an American story. That's actually what makes America unique. Uh, and uh, people, I think, think all of this is just about Israel uh, or it's about Jews. It's not. We're the low-hanging fruit of a much deeper problem. And so What's I interesting is when I try and people, I'm saying Americans, that the message should be, you want to fight anti-Semitism? Explain to people, no, it's not just about fighting Israel. It's about they're fighting, they're jihadists. And if they could take out New Jersey, they would take out New Jersey. And that's the way to change hearts and minds here. That they are, that Israel, to your point, is just the low-hanging fruit and it is a jihad against all Western civilization. Well, try to find people who are anti-Israel and who love America. It's going to be very, first of all, on the, on the left, it's virtually impossible to find those people. Uh, you might find a handful of people like that on the right, but it's, it's, you'll find that they usually go together. The people who have such seething hatred towards Israel they won't say anything good about the United States uh, of what it was, maybe what it what it could be in the future. But here, look, I'm not I'm not we're here to discuss uh, probably Israel policy and because born and raised, obviously, in the United States. And I have a deep affection for America that I think is the greatest superpower in the history of the world. And people who don't understand it just don't know much about history and how other superpowers have uh, have acted. Um, but it's concerning to me. As concerning as I am about the anti-Israel sentiment and anti-Semitic sentiment, it's concerning to me about America, yeah, about yeah. what happens what happens in America's future. Because, look, you, what we have in common, America and Israel, is we are not just countries, we're causes. America's a cause. Israel is a cause. And you see these great figures in American history, when they were trying to reform and they were trying to bring change, they appealed to the creed of America. I think Martin Luther King is the best modern example of that. He said, America, you have this wonderful creed, live up to it. And that's why I think it mobilized so many people. But once you start saying that the inherent creed of the United States is bad, and America is essentially a, a, a nation that not only has imperfections, but its imperfections totally define it, then you're, you're risking the glue that holds the United States together. And by the, uh, as you know, uh, you may not feel this in the United States, but believe me, all of your allies and friends around the world feel it. Without the United States, I mean, the whole world is rudderless. Yeah. And so having a strong America that believes in its cause, that's critical for not just the future of America. It's critical for the future of all countries who certainly who value freedom and democracy and human rights. Well, let's so let, that's, let's that's why this struggle, just to finish the point, this struggle is not just a struggle about let's be friends to Israel, let's support Israel, let's fight anti-Semitism. It's a struggle, in a sense, for the heart and soul of the United States as well. And that's why I think that stance against anti-Semitism, we've been cold, as you know, we're kind of the canary in the coal mine. Societies that turn on Jews, it doesn't turn out very well for others in that society. And I think that's why it's so important to fight this anti-Semitism, not just for Israel's sake, Israel's sake, for the Jewish people's sake, but also for the sake of the United States and the future of freedom and democracy around the world. Let's talk about that Israeli cause because there was a very concerning article yesterday. I'm just going to read you a little quote from Thomas Friedman. And Thomas Friedman, who's been a, a great friend of Israel, uh, and 
this was very concerning. I'm going to read the headline was Israel is losing its greatest asset acceptance. And basically, he said, uh, I'm seeing increasingly rapid erosion of Israel's standing among friendly nations, a level of acceptance and legitimacy has painstakingly built up over decades. And if Biden is not careful, America's uh, global standing will plummet right along with Israel. I'd love your reaction to that because once you start to lose Tom Friedman, we, not that Tom Friedman is the very, I, I want to give an analogy when Walter Cronkite kind of came out and all of a sudden kind of went against the Vietnam War. And I mean, that's concerning. And what, obviously we're going to talk about the pending ceasefire. What does Israel do to gain back this trust, this acceptance, this 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 uh, uh, friendship that's all of a sudden fractured as Israel? Obviously, Israel's defending itself and they're reacting to October 7th. But on a daily basis, we see the bombings, we, we see the, the hospitals, we see children, all the things, you know, tens of thousands of deaths. What does Israel do to do both defend itself, continue to defend itself, but yet fight off this kind of erosion of Israeli goodwill? So... Um Regarding Tom Freeman, I don't want to get too deep into that. I only tell you I was once in an interview, I think it was about 10 years ago, with Andrea Mitchell, I think it was. And she asked me, after reading a Tom Friedman piece, she asked me a question, has Israel lost its soul? That was 10 years ago. So I'm not sure we had Tom Freeman. I'm not sure when we lost him exactly. But if you go back, <laughs> he's, he, has, he has written so many articles criticizing Israel. I'm not sure if there's a major journalist who has written more articles criticizing Israel. Uh, he certainly could not be more cr critical of the prime minister of Israel or the government of Israel. I think when Israel has policies that he agrees with, he supports it. And when Israel has policies, and by Israel, I mean not just the government, but we are a democracy, meaning when the mm -hmm. Israeli people disagree with him, he tends to, uh, you know, to take his pen and, and to excoriate Israel there. So I'm not sure exactly when we lost Tom Friedman, but it's been at least a decade, maybe two decades. You'd have to go back to deeper experts. And I, and I would argue uh, respectfully, that Israel's greatest asset is not its acceptance. Israel's greatest asset is its power, that we are a sovereign nation with the power to defend ourselves. Uh, what's new in Jewish history um, is not that there are people who hate us. That has been going on for a very, very long time. What's new is that the Jews have power to defend themselves. And with that power not only comes uh, responsibility, and we can get into what it means for civilians and what it means for humanitarian assistance and everything else. But with that power comes imperfection. That's the price of sovereignty is imperfection. I have news for Tom Friedman and for everybody else. As I said before, we're not perfect. And I don't need to defend Israel against the standard of perfection. The only people who are totally perfect are perfect victims. And Jews did that for a long time. And you're constantly seeking out acceptance of all sorts of people, but it doesn't save any Jews. You know, I'm sure if the CNN cameras or MSNBC, sorry, the MSNBC goes in there and they had the films uh, in World War II of what was happening. I'm sure there'd be sympathy, more sympathy for the Jews. Would it have saved a single Jew? No. I mean, there's all these tests that people have, you know, hashtag save our girls. Remember what happened with Boko Haram? How many girls did that actually save? Like, I would love the sympathy of the world. And Israel has to do everything it can through its public relations, through branding. I understand you know a little something about that to try to get more sympathy and more understanding. But at the end of the day, all the sympathy in the world is not a replacement for having the basic power to defend yourself. I think it was Golda Meir who said, better bad press than a good eulogy. And so I would say the same thing to Tom Friedman and others. We'll do everything we can to convince the people who want to be convinced. And I think if fair-minded people look at what we're doing, they're going to have a very, very different view of the situation. But if I have to choose between the criticism that I see from quarters in the United States, elsewhere in Europe, around the world that are going after Israel and, and will be accepted, you look back at Israeli history and usually, and I said this, I should tell you, Donnie, you can check it. I think it's on my, my own uh, Twitter feed. I gave an interview, I think October 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th. It was in the first days of the war. And I said, everybody is with an is Israel when we're a victim. The question is, will they be with us when we're a victor? That's the question. When you exercise power, and it gets back to the conversation we had about that zeitgeist. Because when Israel's exercising its might, everybody turns against it. And we're not like, the it's true with the United States too. When the United States is fighting wars, you remember what happened 20 years ago? 
with Iraq. And whether you're for or against the war in Iraq doesn't matter. It's just that once America is is actively fighting, it actually sees enormous uh, resistance to it. And you saw it in Europe and protests in mm-hmm. Europe. Um, so when we fight and we're actively engaged in that fight, you have those protests. Now, people see what's going on and they see the images coming from Gaza. Uh, and it's a great tragedy. Every loss of a civilian life is a great tragedy. And when you see it day after day after day after day, it's obviously going to affect people's uh, judgments of Israel, and it could affect the solidarity with Israel. But ultimately, we have to respond to what is the most horrific attack uh, on Jews since the Holocaust. I think you have spoken very passionately about that as well, about you know the raping of women and the burning of babies and beheadings. And I think you may have seen this 45-minute video, which is their own videos that they're taking, which is yeah. what's different. I'm very hesitant to compare anything to uh, the Holocaust, uh, because I just think it's unique. And maybe on a future episode, we'll talk about what was so unique about the Holocaust. But what struck me about what happened on October 7th was, you know, before, and I, you know it from the Hamas charter, they want to kill not just, they not, they not only want to destroy Israel, the Jewish state, they want to dis- murder Jews all over the world. And they, and they say it in their charter. So we knew that before, that they would kill everybody, just like the Nazis wanted to kill all the Jews. It was a question of the capability. What are the capabilities that they had? They don't have the capability to do what the Nazis did because there's an Israel that's stopping them. If Israel's army put down its guns tomorrow, you'd see they would kill everybody in Israel. And then they'd move on. And eventually they'd get to other places to kill Jews. What was unique, though, and different than the Nazis is the Nazis hid their war crimes. Even in 1944, they were inviting the Red Cross to, like, Theresienstadt concentration camp, and they were get the prisoners, you know, get them, uh, uh, the, the Jews, maybe put a little rouge on their cheeks and get them running around to show that this was some kind of a day camp to con the Red Cross, the International Red Cross. These guys had GoPros of them perpetrating these massacres, meaning they're proud of it. That was, that was the, most, the most chilling part. Obviously, seeing the slaughter was unthinkable, but the joy, the jubilee, the rapture that these animals felt in killing innocent Jews and, and non-Jews, that was the most frightening part of that video. Uh, listen, just one thing. They, they'd be human animals, as you may say, but they're humans. And when you are brainwashed in what they're brainwashed to believe the wild things that they believe, that's how these things happen. Like We, we want to make it clear that this, this type of fanaticism can be bred. And that's what they do from a young age, from the age of uh, three, four, five. That's well, the along those lines. They- along those lines, you know, we a lot of people. It's easy to not easy. People go, okay, Hamas. There's twenty thousand bad guys, Hamas, and two million, two point two innocent Gazans. My concern, and obviously anybody's concern, would be, okay, since it's been fifteen years since this is being taught in school, what percentage of those two million Gazans have been these civilians have been radicalized? And that's that's the big concern going into the future. So, you know, I've been following polls there for a long time, and my reading of the polls are, are this. And, and here, it's not just an issue of Gaza. This is the mistake that people make. Yes, Hamas perpetrated this attack on October 7th. And yes, Israel needs to go and to destroy Hamas as a military organization in Gaza. And we can talk about what that means. And I'd say they have about 30,000 fighters and Islamic Jihad has another five or 10,000. So you probably have about 40,000. The problem is that 85% of people, of Palestinians who live in Judea, Samaria, the West Bank, 85% support October 7th, 85%. So the radicalization problem does not stop at the border of Gaza. It goes throughout Palestinian society, which is a huge problem for those people who ultimately want to get to peace. And I'm actually optimistic about it. And we can talk about why that is, because I think we have a moment where in the wake of this military victory, if we do the right things, you can de-radicalize the population over time. But you have a huge problem. I remember somebody sent me a, uh, a video, it was about 10 days after October 7th, and, and, and they sent me the video and they, and they wrote, look at what Hamas teaches their children. And then I clicked on it and it's like a 10-year-old talking about stabbing the Jews and a 12-year-old, all the Jews have to die, all these wild things. But this was actually on the West Bank. It wasn't in Gaza. 
Now, you asked me what percent of the Palestinian population, most of the polls that I've seen before October 7th have about a third of the people who directly would support, you know, mass killing of Jews, about a third. And then you had around, that's why the 85% number was high for me. I thought it would have been maybe 60 or 65. I, I thought it was a majority, but I didn't think it was going to be that high, which I think should concern us even more. But about a third of people in polls will support armed uh, uh, fighting against Israel and terror attacks against Israel consistently. And then about a third are opposed to it. And then you have a middle third that pretty much is poison like the bad third, but hasn't brought themselves to kind of fully supporting the action. Ideologically, they're with the bad third, but they don't support the action. Now, 85% supporting what happened on October 7th, that's super dangerous. And all of those people who are saying, well, you know, two-state solution and we need to have peace, you're not going to have peace between Israelis and Palestinians until you deal with the problem of de-radicalization. So what is the source of my hope? The source of my hope is that after October 7th, and after Israel does what we need to do to achieve the military victory, which, again, we can talk about, we have to be what I would say, what Churchill said when he wrote the history of World War II, magnanimity and victory. What we need to do is help the Palestinians build a completely different future. And my own view uh, is that we need to link reconstruction in Gaza to de-radicalization. Now, that's not linking humanitarian assistance. We have an obligation to put humanitarian, to enable humanitarian assistance to go in. And that they'll have, I mean, the, to, to meet the basic minimal needs. And we're doing that now when we're fighting. And it's very politically contentious in Israel. But the prime minister is pushing that through. We've got hostages there, which is why people in Israel are trying to stop the trucks from going in and delivering humanitarian assistance. Because they say, why should they get humanitarian when they're holding our hostages? Now, I, I support providing that humanitarian assistance. It's the right thing to do, but it's very, very complicated. I'm not talking about linking humanitarian assistance to anything. What I'm saying is if you want to rebuild Gaza, you have to de-radicalize. And that's schools, it's mosques, it's the idea of what they call refugee camps, which is basically fourth and fifth generation Palestinian refugees. It's the only people in the world that have an endless status of refugee status. Um, and also, I think, dealing with the media. And we could talk about all those things if you want to break it down. But the reason I'm optimistic is in the wake of a military victory, certain things are possible that were not before. What you did it in Germany and Japan, you actually were very clear and you showed magnanimity and victory. You did it with a Marshall Plan in Europe. And I think what happened with the Japanese was remarkable. If you think about how great an ally Japan is to the United States today and how, I mean, they, they were given somewhat of a pass because of the Nazis. And people remember that historically more than they remember the Japanese. But it was a deeply radicalized culture. And yet you won a victory. You de-radicalized that culture. Uh, and now they're one of your best allies. And the, the, what the conventional wisdom. Go ahead. Just one, la one last point. You don't have to look 75 years ago because people will say, well, that's different examples and one's in Europe and one's in Asia. De-radicalization is happening in the Middle East today. It's happening in Saudi Arabia and it's happening in the Emirates. So we now have real partners for de-radicalization in Gaza. And what we need to do is begin that process. Then when you want to have a discussion about what the end game should look, look like for ultimately resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that's a very interesting conversation to have. But the first thing we need to do is achieve a military victory. And I'll just say one thing. The idea of like pushing a Palestinian state, it's very interesting to have a conversation about a two-state solution and the issues with it, because there are serious issues with it that even people who support a two-state solution will agree with. Because I ask, do you support a two-state solution? People say yes. I said, well, do you think the Palestinians should have an army? No. Do you think the Palestinians should be able to bring anything they want into their borders? No. Do you think the Palestinians should control half the airspace between the Jordan and the Mediterranean? No. Do you think the Palestinians should be able to make military pacts with Iran? No. So I said, wait a second. So you think that there should be certain restrictions on sovereign powers of a future Palestinian state? Yes. I said, okay, well, let's figure out how you do that. And what is the prime minister's position where he has demonized across the world for the position? He says, I want the Palestinians to have all the powers to govern themselves but none of the powers that could threaten Israel. It's a real problem. We have to discuss it. But before we can have the discussion, we have to have a victory. And the last thing we want to do is have any Palestinian a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now think 
you know, October 7th really advanced our cause. October 7th propelled the Palestinian national movement forward. That's a disaster. That will ensure that we'll never have peace. And, and one last thing on this. Um, I saw an interview maybe 20 years ago from uh, Hanan Ashrari, who is a prominent Isra uh, Palestinian spokeswoman. And it was after a Jerusalem bus bombing. And I think it was a bus bombing. And I'm, I turn on the TV. I think it was BBC was interviewing her. And the interviewer says to her, you know, Mrs. Ashari, you're never going to get a Palestinian state until you fight terror and make peace with Israel. And she had an answer that was very eye-opening. She said, no, the issue of Palestinian statehood and peace with Israel, those are two separate issues. She said, we're people with a right of self-determination. That's why we have to have a state. Whether we decide to make peace with Israel is a separate story. So you have to understand what the Palestinians, not Hamas, Hamas is an Islamist jihadi, as you said, they're not interested in a Palestinian state. Maybe they'll stop for five minutes to, to get one to just continue their jihad throughout the region. But the other side of the Palestinian political spectrum, what they have been interested in is a state to continue the conflict, not to end the conflict. And that's why I ask everybody who supports a two-state solution, I have only one request for them. Do not separate statehood from peace. Because if you do that, you will ensure that there'll never be peace. That, those things have to be connected together. Um, and unfortunately, so then, so then what's I, the I, I, I yeah. hear everything you're saying about a two-state solution, but a continued you know, what is that we're going to talk about what, what's on the table now, but a continued occupation of Gaza and the West Bank, many would argue on the other side, will never solve the problem either. So give me the playbook, give me the solution, because everybody's saying, okay, what, what's next, what's next, what's next, what, what's, what's, what is the Ron Dermer solution? Because to me, well, this seems like all, a, a, Rub a Rubik's Cube. And I, 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 I always think I'm the smartest guy in the room. I'm, I, I couldn't even fathom what the end game is here. So, so here, first of all, Israel's government's going to have to make decisions. And I'm one minister uh, in the government. Uh, but we, the prime minister did put out a statement that has very, very broad consensus within Israel. Um, it, it's not everything that the right likes or everything that the left likes, but it actually has some basic things. And his principles that he put forward about a day after was not necessarily a day after plan. It was essentially principles. And the principle will there be there will be a Palestinian civilian leadership. They're going to govern themselves. They're going to have to control their own lives. And who that Palestinian civilian leadership, that remains to be seen. It obviously can't be Hamas. The reason why we're opposed to the Palestinian Authority doing it is because they have not demilitarized or de-radicalized their own society today. So why are we putting them back in the Gaza Strip to just repeat the same mistake again? Now, can there be another force among the Palestinians that can emerge? I think so. But they're not going to emerge when they still think Hamas has a future. It's only when it's clear that Hamas is finished that you have a chance for something else to emerge. And we have to work with local Palestinians to allow them to govern themselves. And the real right that Israel wants is not to go in back into Gaza or resettle Gaza, but it's actually to go and make sure that the basic security powers that I told you remain in Israel's hands, that we can continue to fight terrorism in the territory between uh, the Jordan and the Mediterranean. Because there's no other force that we can see in the foreseeable future that is gonna go and fight terrorism. So all the powers to govern themselves, none of the powers that could threaten Israel. And I think here, a victory, and the reason why I'm optimistic, in the wake of the victory, there's a chance for a change. And instead of repeating what we've been repeating for the define, last 30 define, years. Define a victory. When do, we, when do you spike the ball? Yes, that's a very good, that's a, it's, they don't play football in the Middle East, unfortunately. Right. Um, but yeah, spike the ball. Uh, Here's what I would say a military victory looks like. Uh, there, in my view, there's kind of three elements to it. The first element is you have to destroy the organized military force of Hamas. Because Hamas in Gaza is not a terror organization, it's a terror army. And we're dismantling the army. We have dismantled 18 of the 24 battalions. There are four battalions in the southern part of Gaza, which is Rafah, and there's two more like in the central part of it. But 18 of the 24, that's 75% of the battalions have been destroyed. Now, when you destroy a battalion, just so you understand, uh, Donnie, it doesn't mean that you've killed everybody or taken everybody off the battlefield. It's usually half 
half or more. I've either been killed or wounded. And if you look at the overall numbers, I told you there's a force of about 40,000 terrorists in the, in the Gaza Strip. So Israel has killed, uh, I think the latest, latest numbers that I saw, at least 11,000 in the Gaza Strip. Um, we killed 1,300 of those people who came over our borders on October 7th on our side. We've captured another 2,000. So at minimum, there's around 14,000 that have been killed and captured. How many are wounded? We don't know exactly how many are wounded, but the numbers in Gaza are usually about two to one. Let's be conservative and say one to one. And so you killed about another 10, 11,000. I mean, wounded another 10 or 11,000 Hamas fighters. It means around 25,000 have been taken off the battlefield, which leaves you roughly around 15,000. Now we have to go and dismantle the rest of these uh, 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 battalions. When we do that, I suspect we'll be down to five or 10,000 uh, fighters, but not in an organized capability like they had before. In addition to that, I think it's important to get the leadership. We have not succeeded in getting the leadership yet. We have done very well with the battalions. We've done very well with taking the, 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 the fighters, the terrorists off the field. And we're also slowly but surely working through this underground tunnel terror network uh, and destroying it methodically. And that's ongoing every single day. And that's why it also looks maybe from your point of view that it's slow. I should say, compared to what the United States and Mosul, this thing is moving very fast. I mean, you went to Mosul, it took you nine months. You were fighting not 40,000, three to 5,000 you were fighting terrorists. And I think you, you killed uh, 10,000 civilians were killed in that war in Mosul. So the ratio was something like three to one of civilians versus uh, combatants. Our ratios are much lower. And even though our ratios are much lower, we're, we're accused of perpetrating a genocide. As crazy as that is, we're fighting a genocidal force that openly declares that it wants to murder all the Jews, that tries, as you saw, a sneak preview of that on October 7th. And yet Israel's accused of genocide. And I can tell you, Donnie, if we're a genocidal, we're the dumbest genocidal force in history because the Palestinians are 10 times the population they were in 1948 and probably five times what it was in Gaza when we took it over in 1967. Of course, it's crazy, these ideas. We're fighting a brutal enemy that embeds itself in the civilian infrastructure of hospitals, schools, and mosques and everything. And I have to tell you this, with something I learned in this war. We've had rounds in Gaza before, and you know that Hamas has this whole human shield thing, that that's what they try to do, so that we fight them, we can't give them immunity, so we have to go after them. We do our best to get the civilians out of harm's way, but unfortunately you have civilians who are, who are killed, and then they'll use that to flip the whole international media against Israel and blame Israel. And what I always say, is I don't have a problem with you showing these heart-wrenching pictures that hit me in the gut of a, of a child, a Palestinian child being pulled uh, out of the rubble. I don't have a problem with you showing it, but you should blame Hamas. They're the ones who are responsible for this, not blame Israel, because if they think this tactic will work for them, they'll continue to use it. So, But what I found in this war is something I didn't realize. You know that they have tunnels underneath schools and mosques and hospitals, right? But here's what I saw. I saw a satellite photo of an area of where the tunnel shaft, and it was, I think, 2018, maybe. And then they showed another one in 2022. And in 2018, there's nothing on top of the tunnel shaft. And then in 2022, there's a school on top of it. So they don't dig tunnels under schools. They build schools over tunnels. Top of tunnels. Their whole strategy, it's not a tactic of war. It's the whole strategy of war is an underground terror fortress and then to put Israel in this impossible situation. And instead of, is, instead of the world applauding Israel and saying, look at the care you're taking to, to keep civilians out of harm's way. We have dropped, I saw the numbers, 9 million, 9, I think it's 9 million flyers. It might be more than, it was 9 or 19 million, I can't remember. I think 9 million flyers we dropped, 9 million text messages. You've got about 100,000 phone calls directly with people, specifically to people to get them out of harm's way. We have taken action that no country takes and also flagging where we're going to go in to get the civilians out of harm's way. And what's important for your listeners to understand, Israel is doing this not thousands of miles away. They're doing it literally a few hundred yards away from their homes. It's literally next door. So when you when you judge Israel and you think about Israel, I always, in my mind, having been born and raised in the United States, I always ask myself what I call the WWAD question. Okay, what would America do? 
So the equivalent, when Israel does something in America, America is about 40 times the population. So instead of 1,200, it would be 50,000 Americans who would be killed on a single day, which is the equivalent of about 29 11s. So imagine you have terrorists just uh, bust over your border, come in thousands. I don't want to besmirch Mexico or Canada. Uh, but imagine they all come in over your border, kill 50,000 Americans, and then take 10,000 Americans hostage. Because we had 250, that's 40 times, is about 10,000. 10,000 American hostages. And then they fire rockets where you have half of your country running into bomb shelters. What do you think the United States would do? Do you think that the conversation in the United States would be how many trucks came in to that place recently? What is happening with the humanitarian assistance? Of course not. It would be an entirely different question. So Israel is judged by a different standard, unfortunately, than any other country in the world. And I would only ask the, the American people, just don't rush to judgment against Israel. Learn the facts. Understand exactly why we're doing what we're doing. And I think the more they learn about it, the more they're going to understand that we are doing things that no other army has ever done. Uh, in the history of the world. And don't take my word for it. I think there was an article, hopefully you'll put it up uh, on your site from Newsweek, um, by John Spencer, who teaches urban war at the Urban War Institute in West Point. So I hope he's a credible source. And he says Israel's done things that no other army has ever done. The only battle that he compares it to of, in your history is the Battle of Manila. And I said, I'm not an expert on the Battle of Manila, but he said there were 17,000 people, uh, Japanese, who were fighting. They were all in the sewage system, so it had an underground element, not like what we're dealing with, but at least an underground element. And your soldiers had to go in there and defeat the Japanese, and I think 100,000 civilians were killed in that process. So when you rush the judgment to Israel, stop a second, look at the facts, see what's going on, and understand in a deep way that our fight against that terror organization is your fight as well. We cannot give them immunity. We have to say you cannot use people as human shields. Every terror organization around the world is looking. And they say if America goes wobbly and doesn't support Israel, which thankfully is not happening, I should say. Maybe we talk about polls that have come out as well recently, which I think are fascinating. But if they see America goes wobbly and they see these awful pictures and that leads to a complete change, in, in public support for Israel, then other terror organizations are going to adopt this tactic. We have to save women and children from being held hostage from terror organizations, not just our hostages, but Palestinian hostages that are being held there. And we have to win this war. And in the wake of this war, I think we have to be, as you say, we have to be smart, be magnanimous in victory, talk about a long-term solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, if we have a process that de-radicalizes the population over time, I'm confident ultimately we can get a settlement of this conflict. Because the reason why this conflict hasn't been settled for over 100 years is not because there hasn't been a Palestinian state that's been established. They, that could have happened many times, 1937, 1947, could have happened in 2000 at Camp David, in 2008. We can go on and on and all the times. It's because the refusal to accept the legitimacy of a nation state for the Jewish people called the state of Israel in any boundary. That's the conflict. And once we can de-radicalize the population where they can understand, you know, guess what? Israel has a claim to this territory. We're not like the Belgians in the Congo. We're not the British in India. We're not the French in Algeria. We're not some colonialist force. That this is the historic Jewish homeland of the Jewish people. This is where the patriarchs of the Jewish people prayed, where our prophets preached, where our kings ruled. We have a claim on this land. They don't have to deny their own claim. They can say they have a claim and we have a claim. Then you're in a negotiation. But when they say you stole our house, it's all ours and not yours, and you're some foreign colonialist from somewhere, then you're never going to be able to solve this problem. We have to de-radicalize, get people to stop thinking about and, and, and teaching their kids to murder Jews. And, and here, I'm sorry for the, for the, the stream of consciousness, but I Go must ahead. tell you, when uh, the United States at the beginning started talking about a revitalized Palestinian authority. When I first heard the word revitalized, I called up one of my counterparts in the United States and I say, what does that mean? Revitalized to me means going to a day spa. That's what it means to be revitalized. What does it mean a revitalized Palestinian authority? And then they said, well, it's reform and you need good governance and you need fighting corruption. I said, no, no, no. There are a hundred corrupt countries around the world and there's probably 120 dysfunctional governments around the world. But they're not governments around the world that teach five-year-olds 
to murder Jews and teach 10 year olds, you know, to murder Jews and teach 15 year olds that your heroes should be those people who murder Jews. What we need to do is do a deep de-radicalization. And I think if the international community and certainly the United States partners with us, and we have regional partners now, which we didn't have 20 years ago when there was a transition from Arafat to Abu Mazen, they were not there. But the Saudis are de-radicalizing. The Emiratis are de-radicalizing. If we bring them in as partners, then I actually am very optimistic about the prospects of ultimately getting to a settlement. And I think we need to think of doing this in one generation. If you think about doing it in a generation, you might get their intent. But if you say to yourself, you know, in three years, there's going to be a Palestinian state and we're going to solve the conflict when 85% of the people supported what happened on October 7th, you're kidding yourself. So let's use this opportunity to have a, a real peace process, something that, frankly, we have not had for 30 years. Okay, so I, I, I want to jump in for a second. What's the latest? Because I, I know you're, you're pressed for time. President Biden has said that by the weekend, uh, there should he's thinking there's going to be a ceasefire. What is the latest on the deal on the table? You mean the hostage negotiations? Yes. Well, yes. listen, it, the, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I, you know, I hope Biden's uh, President Biden's optimism is true. And, and here I, I, I will tell you that he has been um, very helpful in the first round at securing the deal that got those 80 women, women and children out, including a couple of dozen uh, foreign nationals as well. I think he pressed the Qataris, which truly need to be pressed because they're the ones that have the influence on Hamas. And he was very helpful there. And the U.S. is definitely trying to be helpful in getting to a second deal. I think one of the issues is, is Hamas is insisting that, you know, we end the war. And we're not, we're not going to end the war. We cannot leave um, part of Hamas's military organization structurally intact in southern Gaza. Now, the war is not going to end when like I said, when, when every single Hamas terrorist is killed, that's not the end of the war. But you have to take care of their organized terror force. It's uh, just, I'll get back to the hostage, but I want to make this point clear to your listeners because because a, a senior U.S. official was here recently about six weeks ago and he says, you know, Hamas is an idea and you can't destroy an idea. And I said, Nazism is an idea. And there are Nazis in Charlottesville walking around with tiki torches that they bought at Bed Bath and Beyond, but they don't have a state called Germany. And ISIS is an idea. And there are black flags in a lot of bedrooms, not just in the Middle East, but also in places in Europe. And for all I know, places in the United States, the black flags of ISIS. But they don't have a caliphate in Iraq and Syria. And when you deny a territorial base, to a terror organization, it's a completely different story. So our goal in Gaza is to destroy them as an organized uh, military force in Gaza. There'll still be terrorists left there. There'll be terrorists left in Judea, Samaria, the West Bank. There'll be Hamas terrorists in different places around the world, but we have to deny them that. And part of the problem in the hostage deal is they want us to basically end the war. And we're not willing to end the war because we haven't achieved the military objective. We're close. We're probably weeks away. The prime minister said it recently on, on U.S. television. He said, once we go into Rafah, this last section, we were weeks away from finishing the heavy fighting phase of the war. Um, and we've done 18 of the 24. It's those last that last stand that they're trying to take in the southern part of the Gaza Strip. That's what we have to finish off. And the chances of us getting to the leadership also will go up because they're running out of space. You know, Gaza is not Russia. They're running out of space there, and they're stuck in that one spot. What we need to do, and here we agree with the Americans and the Biden administration, we got to get the population out of harm's way, give them the time to get out of harm's way, and make sure that we can really ramp up humanitarian assistance to help those people in need. That's what we need to do before you go in to Rafah and to have that plan, and we agree with the United States on this. But the part of the thing is you got to square the circle between the Hamas demand to end the war and our refusal to end the war. Once that is squared, then I think it's possible to see if we can reach an agreement. You know, I'm one uh, one vote in the government, but but I believe that we we deeply want to bring these hostages home. Uh, and as long as we can continue, ultimately continue the fight to win the war, um, then I think that that will pass uh, the vote in the government. And I hope we can get there sooner rather than later. There's a lot of complicating events around it. We haven't discussed what happened in the north and Lebanon as well, because we have active fighting and skirmishes on the Lebanese border as well. We have Ramadan coming up in about 10 days. 
There's a lot of moving parts. As you said, a Rubik's cube, it's kind of like a Rubik's cube and a Rubik. I could never actually solve that thing. You may have been one of those no, guys that could definitely think, not. I, definitely. Not. I could never do it, but um, there's a lot of moving parts to it. But I, I, what I will tell you is that Israel's determined uh, to achieve the objectives it laid out in the war. And I think we're going to achieve those objectives, which is one to dismantle Hamas's military capabilities, to end its political rule in Gaza, to ensure that Gaza no longer poses a threat to Israel and to bring our hostages home. We're going to achieve all of those goals. We are, we have already been able to save, um, I think it's 114 hostages, most of them through the deal that happened. We had a, a, a couple of cases of a rescue, in, in, uh, including a very daring rescue that happened about three weeks ago, uh, where we were able to save two hostages. We saved another one in an earlier rescue operation, but it's largely through these deals that we're able to do it. Um, and I hope I hope we're going to get it. And we're grateful with the with President Biden and how he's trying to help us get to get to that place. Uh, but Hamas is also split between Hamas internally in Gaza and Hamas externally in Gaza. Then you have the Qataris, you have Egyptians. Believe me, it's, I know it's hard to follow if you're watching from abroad. There's a lot of complications here. What I say, the bottom line is that Israel wants to bring these people home. And as soon as we get a deal that enables us to continue to achieve our objectives in this war, we'll be the first to take it. Mr. Ambassador, you've been generous with your time. Keep up the good work. Let's pray for peace. Uh, and you're a good man. Thank you so much, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you. And, and thank you again for, uh, for your stalwart stance against anti-Semitism. As time goes by, it's going to look like a brighter and brighter light. And, and I thank you very much again for that. I, I, don't, I used to, as ambassador, I used to be able to speak uh, on behalf of the uh, of the people of Israel or the state of Israel being an ambassador, but not ju I'm just a lowly minister, so I can only speak on behalf of myself. But I think about unfair-minded people uh, everywhere. I think what the people of Israel like to see sometimes is is a sense of outrage of what happened, you know, and and the lack of outrage that followed October seventh. You said, you know, did it surprise me or not surprise me what people did? But I think to have a few people around the world who are in a position of prominence and who are given a platform to express that sense of outrage, I think really warms the heart of, of, of the people of Israel. We see it. We're very appreciative of it. Uh, and I thank you for it. And hopefully you will keep getting the facts to people uh, and every open-minded and fair-minded person we can hopefully bring uh, to our side in both in winning this war and also winning the peace. Stay safe, my friend. I hope we get to meet in person one day. Take care.